Well, I learned a couple of things this weekend, all right? I learned something about the local news stations. Did you? Okay. There is no more juicy story for the local news, right, than Snowpocalypse 2019. And on Friday night, I was like, we're not only going to have to cancel church, I'm going to have to do memorial services for a bunch of you. People are going to die in this storm. It's going to be six inches, right? And then there was a mad rush on the grocery stores, and none of you did that. My wife sent me a picture from New Seasons because all the shelves were bare at New Seasons. She sent me a picture of a basket that was empty and it said, sold out fennel. <laughs> fennel? <laughs> Only in Portland. <laughs> I was like, if the apocalypse comes, I will not be going for the fennel, all right? I'll be going for bread and milk. Welcome to Portland. I also learned that it's really hard to write a sermon when there's always this chance that you're going to cancel church, you know. Here's a little window in the life of a pastor. The greatest motivator for a pastor is to know that Sunday morning at 9 a.m. is coming, whether you're ready or not. But what if it's not coming <gasps> and you're still writing a sermon? So anyway, I'm really glad to be with you all. Are you glad to be here this morning? <clears throat> We're going to learn. We're going to have a great time. We're going to get into the Word together. Please pull out your Bible and open to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible or if you're a guest or a visitor, we welcome you. We love you. Glad you're here. Raise your hand. Don't be shy. Ushers are coming down now. You'll want the written Word in front of you. Open to Luke 5. I'm so excited about what we're going to learn about Jesus today. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to share with you a sentence that's going to function sort of as a headline for the whole message today. And I want you to think about this sentence with me. It goes like this. Jesus Christ is always on the lookout for a certain kind of person who will join him in his mission. He's on the lookout. Jesus has a mission in our world. He's here to accomplish a mission. And what's amazing is that Jesus wants partners, people who will join him. So he's on the lookout for a certain kind of person who has certain traits. There's a certain set of traits. And Jesus says, when he sees these traits come together. He says, I can, I can work with this. It's not perfect, but I can work with it. It's a lot like what a woman thinks right before she gets married. She thinks it's not perfect, but I can work with it, okay? <laughs> right? That's how Jesus feels about you. He loves you, right? <laughs> he's, he's looking for a certain kind of person. That's what Luke is going to show us today in this story. Now, we're learning amazing things about Jesus, profound, beautiful, powerful things. But what we're going to see this morning in Luke chapter 5 is we're going to see this part of the life of Jesus that gets strategic, where Jesus, in order to accomplish his mission in the world, he begins to identify and choose and invite followers whom he'll call disciples. It's just a, that, that's just a fancy word to describe a learner, someone who wants to learn from Jesus. And Jesus identifies and chooses and invites and calls 
these people to become his disciples. And that's what we'll learn about this morning. Luke chapter 5 is where we're going. Will you look at it with me? Starting in verse 1. Our text today is verses 1 through 11. I'm going to read the whole passage. It's a beautiful passage. Let the story capture your heart. And then we'll break it down into little pieces here today together. Here's what Luke tells us next about Jesus. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret which is another way to describe the Sea of Galilee. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets, getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's. Jesus asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, I mean, I'm inferring that that's what he said, but I'm pretty sure it's pretty close. He said, Master, we toiled all night. We toiled all night. I lost my place. Sorry. Where is it? There it is. Uh, and, but we, and, we, and we made no catch. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me for I am a sinful man, O Lord. And he and all who were, were, were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men and women. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything. And they followed him. Amazing story. It's so profound. It's famous. You're familiar with it. It's beautiful. At one level, this account is about a physical miracle that Jesus performs, a miraculous catch of fish. We'll talk about it more in a moment. But at another level, this story is actually really about a spiritual miracle. And if you're not paying attention, you miss that miracle. And honestly, that's the miracle that matters most. It's the miracle that happens inside of a human heart. It, it's the spiritual miracle is the miracle that the physical miracle is designed to create. And the spiritual miracle is how a fisherman could be transformed into a follower of Christ, a fisher of men. That's the miracle. That's the miracle. Amazing. It's a miracle that Jesus has continued to perform. Many of you are sitting here today because Jesus performed that miracle in your life. Amen? Amen. So good. Now, when you study the passage, one of the things that you, uh, one of the things you notice is that every gospel writer actually tells this story. They, 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 they tell their version of this story. And if you've been around the church and you've, and you've studied, you'll know that the, the different gospels record this account in different ways. There's, there's pretty big differences actually. 
I got a lot of emails from people in the church about it. Like, why is Luke's version of this so different from Mark's version and John's version? These are the kinds of emails I get. I love it. Okay. It's so great. I'm with other pastors and they're complaining. People are emailing me about how hot the coffee is or how cold the sanctuary is or, you know, whatever. But I, I get emails from people about like, why is Luke's account of this so different from Mark's? I'm like, well, I'm so glad you emailed me about that. We're going to talk about that on Sunday, right? So Mark, when Mark tells this story, Mark's version is really fast, really quick, action-packed. And the point of it is to show the authoritative word of Christ. Christ shows up on the beach. He says to Peter, follow me. I'm going to make you a fisher of men. And Peter drops his nets and follows Jesus, leaves everything behind. And you're going, whoa, that was really fast and really intense. And Mark's like, that's the point. I want you to see how authoritative Christ is. When John tells this story, John focuses on the relational, invitational part of being called into discipleship. So John's version, the disciples are, are talking to one another about Jesus and they're saying, come and see. You got to check it. We found the Messiah. Jesus himself says to some disciples, come and see, come spend time with me and you'll see what can happen in your life if you become one of my followers. But Luke, Luke is after something different. That's why when you read the story, you begin to realize the character who's the most important character in this story, other than Jesus, is Peter. Do you notice that? Peter becomes front and center here. It's as if Luke is saying, in order to understand what it means to be a true follower, a true disciple, I want to show you the way Peter responded to the call. Because Peter is giving us an example that we can follow. There are traits that Peter exhibited that you and I are supposed to notice and say, I want to emulate those traits in my life. I want to be like Peter. So what were the characteristics? What were the traits that Peter exemplified? Well, you will be shocked to discover that there are three of them. <gasps> Can you believe that? There's three. <gasps> It's never happened before at the church. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to put these three traits up on the screen. These will be obvious to you. If you read the story, you, I don't have to prove to you that they're there. Here are the three traits of a true disciple. As modeled by Peter. Number one, a will that is responsive to the word of Christ. We're going to talk about that. What does the word will mean? What is your will? And how responsive is your will to the word of Christ? Peter was a model for this. But the second trait is a heart that's sensitive to the holiness of Christ. I love this one. This is like the emotional. This is like the moment where Peter becomes self-aware. This is like the moment where Peter is turned inside out. And then the third one, which follows logically, is a whole life that's sold out to the cause of Christ. What is the cause of Christ? We'll talk about it. So we got the will, we got the heart, we got the whole life. And what I want to do today together is I want to take some time, unpack each of these three. And then at the end of my sermon, I'm going to tell you a little bit about the one force in the universe that actually has the power to create these three things in your life, in your life. So let's talk about it together. First thing that Peter showed us was that he had a will that was responsive to the word of Christ. And we see it in that moment where Peter 
drops his nets at the word of Christ. It's really amazing. It's like there was this automatic response in Peter. It was like a knee-jerk reaction. Christ spoke, gave him a command, and he responds in his will. How did it happen? Let's get the context. Look closely with me at the first couple verses of chapter five. We know that the crowds have gathered. They're pressing in on Christ. They want to hear the word of God. It's not entirely clear how Luke views crowds yet. We're not sure whether or not crowds, when crowds gather, is that a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Is it a neutral thing? Sometimes when crowds gather, their motives are pure. Sometimes when crowds gather, their motives are impure. Sometimes they crowd around because they want another miracle. They want the pop and the fizzle of Jesus. But in this situation, they appear to be gathering because of the word that Jesus is teaching. That seems good. They're crowding in. But one thing we know for certain as we study Luke is that it's never enough just to hear the word. The only people in Luke's gospel who are transformed are the people who, when they hear the word, they immediately are responsive to it through their actions in their heart. And that's what Peter's going to show us. So P- Jesus is teaching. He's becoming popular. Crowds have gathered. He finds himself being backed up against the shore. He turns. You see it there in verse 2. He turns and discovers there are boats there. He gets on one of these boats. It happens to be Simon's boat. He says, Simon, push out on the shore so I can teach. And it's this great moment. I've been to the Sea of Galilee, and I think I was actually at a place where this could have happened, where the way that the land is shaped, it it, it almost creates like an amphitheater effect. And I could imagine this sea of people, and Jesus is 20, 30 feet off, and as he's speaking, his words are bouncing off the lake like an ancient amplification system, right? And the people can hear him clearly, and he's teaching. And then what happens? He finishes teaching, and look what happens, verse 4. He gets done speaking and he says to Simon, hey, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Now let's just pause to acknowledge how annoyed the fishermen were in this moment, all right? This was probably very annoying for them, okay? They had been fishing all night. They were exhausted. They had failed, not a single catch, right? Fishermen worked the night shift. Have you ever worked a night shift? It's brutal. It's brutal. I put myself through college by working the night shift. I drove a massive P Columbine, like a big tractor here in the state of Oregon. I drove for three months for a couple summers. I drove that big tractor from 7 p.m., until 7 a.m., 12-hour shifts, all right? Yeah, 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. At 7 a.m., the other driver would walk onto the tractor, and then I would walk off, and there'd be the second where he grabs the wheel, and then I would walk off. And you know what I felt every morning at 7 a.m.? Deep existential annoyance. I was so annoyed. I was already annoyed. I was tired. Now imagine what they felt. They're annoyed. They're tired. Business is not going well. There's no catch. And now there's this guy telling us how to fish, right? And he's not a fisherman. Have you ever had anyone give you advice in an area where you're an expert? And you're like, you don't know what you're talking about. This is that moment, okay? 
And so just imagine it. And what, but, so what does Peter do? Look at his response, verse five. Simon answered, Master, we have toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word, I will let down the nets. It's so powerful. The way that Luke puts the sentence together, it draws our attention to the super close connection between the word of Christ and the will of Peter. You see that? Just look at your own Bible with it just for a minute. Peter says, at your word, I will. At your word, I will. I want you to stay with that idea just for a minute. It's almost like Luke is drawing attention to the idea that the word of Christ ought to be like a trigger that sends your will into action immediately. You don't even think about it. An analogy that I thought of is a, a starter gun that starts the race. If you're a really good sprinter, the distance between the starter gun and your body kicking into action ought to be extremely short, right? That's what's happening here. It's like, how big is the distance between the word of Christ and my will kicking into action? Amazing. And you read it and you think, wow, Peter, why was he like this? Was he just kind of a more agreeable kind of a person? Maybe he just had that temperament. Maybe Peter was a nine on the Enneagram, you know? Maybe something like that. The nines, they're adaptive peacemakers, right? Maybe it was just his temperament. Maybe Peter was just more of a compliant type of a person. But the problem with that is when you keep studying the life of Peter, you realize Peter was not agreeable. Peter was not compliant. Peter was actually kind of an ornery, bullheaded kind of a guy. But there was something about the word of Christ that when Christ spoke, it immediately triggered Peter's will and he went into action. Amazing. I love it. And so I'll ask you, how responsive are you in your life to the word of Christ? How responsive are you? You know what I learned this week when I studied this passage? Think about this for a minute. I don't have to totally understand the word of Christ and I don't have to totally agree with the word of Christ to obey the word of Christ. Just let that set for a minute. I don't have to always understand. I don't always have to totally agree. Peter didn't. Peter was like, Lord, we've been fishing all night, but at your word, at your word. In fact, sometimes our biggest problem is we, we think too highly of our own ability to understand our world and what's happening. I love the verse, Proverbs 3, 5. It's been a theme verse around our church this weekend. Our women gathered for a retreat and this was their theme isn't this a great verse? Love this verse. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Man, if the verse stopped there, it would be amazing. But then Solomon goes on, he says one more thing. Oh, and don't lean too much on your own understanding. Sometimes my understanding or, or what I think is my understanding of things can actually lead me astray and cause me to be less responsive to the word of Christ. Here's how you can know. Here's another way to ask the question. In our culture, in our world, your Christian faith, there's going to be times where your Christian faith is going to bring you into conflict with our culture. 
the ideas of our culture, the common sense of our culture, what our cultural, what our cultural thinks is normal or even good or the right thing to do. There may be times where if you're following Jesus, you'll find that, wait a minute, I'm in conflict with my culture. And now I have to ask the question, which of these two voices has a stronger impact on my will and my actions in my life? Am I more influenced by what my culture says about this issue than I am about what Jesus says about this issue? This is a really important question. Peter was extremely responsive to the word of Christ. He trusted Christ. He responded in obedience. And Jesus said, I can work with that. I can work with that. Isn't that great? How about you? So here's number two. He was responsive to the word of Christ, but what's more, what we're gonna see here is that Peter was sensitive to the holiness of Christ. And we see this in this dramatic moment as Peter falls to his knees and says, Lord, you don't want to be close to me. Depart from me. I'm so sinful. What a moment. What a moment. So beautiful. We look at it with me, verses six through eight. I want to just read into this so you can see how it happened. Verse six tells us that when they had done this, when they had obeyed Christ and dropped their nets, they enclosed a large number of fish. Their nets are breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come. And they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. Just imagine that moment. So many fish, the boats are sinking, right? But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. And what is interesting about this is this is not what you're expecting. This is not the response I would have expected. So I would have expected joy. I would have expected gratitude, high-fiving. This was like a big business day for them suddenly. They went from we're going to go bankrupt as a fishing business to we're now like extremely profitable. This catch was their biggest win of their lives, all right? Imagine what that feels like. The adrenaline rush, you make a huge sale, you have a win at work. There's like this rush of joy and gratitude and you're thankful, but that's not what happened to Peter. Peter's taking all this in, he's watching what's happening and in a moment, something triggers in his heart and he falls to his knees And what happens to Peter is that he becomes aware of a distance that exists between his holiness and the holiness of Christ. Amazing. Peter realizes this is more than just a guy who knew where the fish were. The person who's in my boat is the Holy One of God. And when I'm in his presence, it makes me realize I'm so broken, I'm so sinful. And Jesus says, I can work with that. I can work with that. Have you ever had that experience in your life? It happens to almost everyone who's a Christian. At some point in your life, you'll have a moment. You won't know it's coming. You'll be sitting in a worship service. You'll be in a small group. And suddenly, you will become struck by the holiness of God. I remember when it happened to me. I was on a retreat with a bunch of other staff 
this was back when I worked for Young Life. We were away. We were having a, a time of worship. I was sitting on a couch worshiping, and suddenly I just became aware of the holiness of God. And I remember sitting on that couch and I just like slid out of the, you know, like in the cartoons when they, when they don't have a spine and they just like slide out. And I went down onto my knees and I just started weeping and it wasn't weeping. It was not weeping. Like I feel sorry for myself. It was, it was a joyful weeping as I took in how holy God is and how thankful I was to be the recipient of his grace. I felt so unworthy and yet I felt so loved right there in that moment. Only the gospel can do that. Isn't that amazing? I call it the push-pull and I think Peter felt this. Part of you is going, push, like, Lord, you don't want to be near me. Oh, if only you knew. But then there's a pull part where you're like, but oh, the last thing I want is for Jesus to abandon me. Push, Lord, I'm so sinful. You don't, if you only knew, but oh, I hope that you won't distance yourself from me. Peter felt it. Have you ever felt that? How beautiful, how important. Perhaps Peter was thinking in that moment, I've just disqualified myself from being a follower of Jesus. What he didn't realize is he, this was actually the prerequisite. This was the thing Jesus was looking for, a sensitivity. C.S. Lewis wrote, an article called God in the Dock. In 1948, he was asked to write an article about what are the challenges uh, uh, in terms of sharing Christian faith in a modern society. And so he wrote a whole article about it and, it, and it became known as God in the Dock. And it's a part of a series of essays on apologetics. I recommend this book. It's wonderful. But I want to read to you a quote from this essay that blew my mind. I'm going to put this on the screens. Can you see that? It's really small. How's your eyesight today? Good? Okay, good. Listen to this. It's classic C.S. Lewis. He says, the ancient man approached God or even the gods as the accused person approaches his judge. For the modern man, the roles are reversed. He is the judge and God is in the dock. Now, let me stop just for a minute and tell you what, a, the, what that word dock means. In a British court, when someone has been accused of a crime, they go up into the dock. It's the place where you sit if you're accused. It was a wooden box that was elevated up. And that was where you sat if you were the accused. You're in the dock. And Lewis has this brilliant insight. He says, for thousands and thousands of years, Men and women always understood, I am the one who is in the seat of the accused, but something has happened in our world, a shift. It's been subtle, but it's marked. And the shift is this, for modern people, we're no longer in the dock. God is in the dock and we're determining whether or not he is good or holy or worth following. What a change. The roles are reversed. He is the judge. God is in the dock. He, that is man, is quite a kindly judge. If God should have a reasonable defense for being the God who permits war, poverty, and disease, he is ready to listen to it. The trial may even end in God's acquittal, but the important thing is that man is on the bench 
and God in the dock. Whoa. Wow. And Luke says, but not Peter, not Peter. And do you want to know why Peter became the kind of person who had such an impact in the world? It was because he was sensitive to his sin. When you're sensitive to your sin, you're responsive to Jesus. But the reverse is true. If I'm not sensitive, if I'm calloused to sin, or if I even have God in the dock, what happens is I'm not responsive to Jesus. And so Luke says, how about you? How about you? As you become aware of the holiness of God, what might God do in your heart? Would you become sensitive and tender, and, but also grateful for God's grace. I'm praying that that's happening today in our church. Amen. Amen. It's trait number two. And here we go, trait number three, and we'll, this will take us to communion. Peter was responsive to the word of Christ. He was sensitive to the holiness of Christ. And then finally, and as a result of these, Peter became sold out to the cause of Christ. And what was that cause? Well, let's look at it. For the very first time in Luke's gospel, we get an explanation of the mission of Jesus. And he uses a fishing analogy. Here's how it happened. Peter had said, depart from from me, I'm sinful. And then verse nine, for he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything. And they followed him. They left everything. And actually, we know that from this point forward, Peter never fished again as a professional fisherman. He did go fishing one more time, and I'm going to tell you about that at the end of the sermon because there's a connection. But he never fished again as a professional. Now, he said, are you telling me I have to leave my job in order to be on mission for Jesus? No. In fact, where you are right now, your life, think of your life as a circle of influence, where you work, where you live, where you go grocery shopping, where you go to buy your fennel. I don't know. But that, that place, that place is your mission field. And Luke is saying, are you sold out? Are you on mission for Jesus Christ? And what is the mission? To be catchers of men and women. That's the mission. Jesus says, let me use a fishing metaphor because you guys are fishermen. And it was a powerful metaphor. There was a lot to it. The fishermen would have immediately heard that and started thinking about all of the challenges of fishing. Fishing is really hard work. It's not automatic. Fish don't jump into your boat and say, catch me, right? They knew this. They knew this. They knew we have to be strategic. We have to be smart. We have to be prepared. This is going to be hard work there will be mornings where we will have failed. Will we keep going? Will we work together? Will we think about this? Will we care about this? The same way I care about my business, Jesus says, do you care about my cause? So good. A lot of 
pastors in the United States are talking about evangelism right now. It's a big conversation that's happening because a lot of pastors are noticing something is going wrong with the the state of evangelism in the United States. In fact, the Barna Group just released a study about evangelism that they've sent out to all the pastors. And it was really interesting. They interviewed Christians and non-Christians and what they call lapsed Christians. And they were just trying to get a sense of how do, how do Christians think about evangelism and, and how do non-Christians think about evangelism? It's very interesting. So let me share, I've got papers. Let me share. There's some interesting stuff in here. Uh, the number one thing they notice about non-Christians is that non-Christians respond the most to relationships with someone that they know who's willing to sit with them and have a conversation and just talk casually. That's the number one response for non-Christians. They respond the least to people with blowhorns yelling at them. It's a surprise, isn't it? It's actually in the data. They're like people who, who shove tracts in your face or yell at you is not a very good evangelistic strategy. Write that down in your notes. The number one effective way is a relationship with someone who's willing to talk to you. In fact, what they discovered, what they discovered is for a non-Christian, if they have one or two or three conversations with a Christian that they know about faith, what happens is they become more and more curious and they become more and more willing to check out a faith community or, or join a group of some kind. Isn't that interesting? Interesting? So start to think about that in, in the context of your life. Well, then they kept doing studies and here's, here's what they discovered. Unfortunately, uh, most Christians, so two out of five, only two out of five Christians have more than one non-Christian friend. Just think about that for a minute. The numbers are really weird. They're saying, unfortunately, most Christians don't have very many non-Christians in their life that they're friends with. Now, when you go down into the younger generations, like the millennials, that number goes up. Millennials know a lot more non-Christians. And remember last week, we love millennials here, okay? This is a millennial safe space. You're well, it's good, okay? So millennials and then younger, they know a lot more non-Christians, but here's the problem. And this is where the data, I, I could not believe when I read this. Millennials and younger, all those younger generations, 50% of young people think it's morally wrong to share their faith with a non-Christian. And let's not blame them, okay? Think about this for a minute. 50% of people 35 and younger think it's morally inappropriate to share their faith. They've been told, who are you to tell someone else that they need Jesus? And so I lay the blame at the feet of the church and our failure to talk about evangelism appropriately. And and there's a lot happening in our culture in the news, and I get it. There are lots of factors, but here's the point. If in a community of faith, there's a vast 
vast number of people who actually think it's inappropriate to do it, would we do it? No, we wouldn't. But we read Luke 5 and Luke says, let me tell you about the cause of Christ. The cause of Christ is to work together to be a part of a team, to take the gospel of Christ to the world, to become fishermen. And the best way to do it is in community. The best way to do it is to do in relationship with one another. So we have in our church a ministry that's so important. It's called Christianity Explored. You've heard me talking about this ministry. I'm going to talk about it again today because I've met many of you and, and you know, you know, I need a format. I need a context. I need a place where it's safe, where there's community in a, someone's living room, where maybe there's a meal that's served and there's the kind of dialogue that's winsome and kind. I could bring a friend or a neighbor, a non-Christian, and they could learn about Jesus in a place where they would not feel threatened. We have that ministry at our church. It's called Christianity Explored. And the leaders of that ministry will be right out there today to, to talk to you about it. Don't let this moment go by. I'm, I'm bringing this up because I'm asking you to join Jesus on mission. And Christianity Explored is one way that you can do it. Amen? Amen? It's good. Luke says, after all this happened, Peter pulled up to the shore and he dropped everything and he followed Jesus. Why did he do that? What happened? What caused it? What I want to do is, I got to end the sermon talking to you about grace. We're going to talk about grace. Grace is the only thing that has the power to create this in you. You can't muster this up on your own. God has to do it in your heart and in your life. You know, it's really interesting. This is not the only time that the disciples had a miraculous catch of fish. It happened again. It's very interesting. At the end of the gospel of John, after Jesus has died and he, he's, been, he's been raised to new life, but the disciples don't know it yet. They're in despair. They go back to their home and they're, they're spending time with each other. And Peter, John 21, go read it later. He turns to the other disciples and he says, I'm going fishing. Well, come with me. And they all go out into the lake. They take out their boat. They throw their nets out there and they don't catch a single fish. Sounds familiar, right? And when they're done and they're discouraged and they're deeply annoyed, okay, they're annoyed, they look up and there's a man standing on the beach. It's the risen Christ, but they don't know it. And he says to them, hey, why don't you throw your nets on the right side of the boat? What a brilliant suggestion, right? And, the, and this sounds like, I, I bet Peter was like, I'm so annoyed. Wait a minute, I remember something like this happening to me once before. And he looks up and John says, it's the Lord. They throw their nets in the water. They make this a massive catch of fish. The boat is sinking. And what does Peter do? He takes off his outer garment. He jumps in the water. He swims back to shore and he's reunited with Christ. And the reason that matters is that Peter had failed miserably. He had abandoned Christ. He had denied Christ. He turned his back on Christ. After Christ had blessed him and taught him, he was following Jesus. What does Jesus do? Jesus comes right back. He performs the exact same miracle. He restores Peter and he says, now you understand grace. Follow me. You can do this. 
with me, pouring into you, investing in you, dying for you and rising again. And let me tell you something, River West, the very same grace that transformed Peter is available for you today. It's why you're here. Maybe you don't know why you're here. Maybe you showed up and you thought, why am I coming to church today? Well, I think you came to church today because Jesus is on the lookout for people who will join him on his mission. Amen? Amen. I'm going to pray for you and we're going to go to the table together. Will you bow your heads? The worship team comes. Lord, we need this truth. We need grace. We need the gospel. We don't need a message that tells us we can do this on our own without Jesus. We need a message that tells us I can't do this without Jesus. And so thank you, Lord, for sending Christ. Thank you for the death of Christ. Thank you for the resurrection of Christ. Thank you for the forgiveness that is ours in Christ. Thank you for choosing us and loving us and changing our hearts. Thank you for making us sensitive to your holiness and to our sin and to the space that there is between those things that gets filled with the grace of Jesus in his death and resurrection. We're eternally indebted and we want to follow you. We want to be sold out. Would you cause your gospel to spread in our community through our church, through our relationships, through our ministries, we pray. And we ask it together in Jesus' name. Everyone said, amen, amen. Amen.